Art of the Cut is brought to you by FilmTools.com, your one-stop shop for production and post-production gear. Be sure to listen for an exclusive site-wide offer later in the show. Hello, and welcome to the Art of the Cut podcast. I'm Steve Hallfish. I'm a feature film editor and discuss the art and craft of film editing with my colleagues in film and TV. With some editors, I talk about their awards, then about the rest of their filmography. With Kirk Baxter, ACE, the only filmography to talk about is the stuff he's won awards for, or at least nominations. Before any of his numerous awards for editing, he was nominated for an Emmy for Outstanding Main Title Design for Big Love. His first editing nominations were BAFTA, Ace Eddie, and Oscar nominations for The Curious Case of Benjamin Button. Then there was a BAFTA win, an Ace Eddie win, and an Oscar win for editing The Social Network, followed the very next year with another Oscar win for The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. Then a Primetime Emmy nomination and an Ace Eddie nomination for House of Cards, an Ace Eddie nomination for Gone Girl, an Ace Eddie nomination for Mindhunter, and as we head into the real awards season, he already has multiple nominations for his work on Mank, which is what we're going to talk about today. I last talked to Kirk Baxter for his work on Gong Girl, and about a month ago, we featured Kirk's assistant editor, Ben Insler, with the technical details behind editing Mank in Premiere Pro. Kirk wanted me to discuss the nuts and bolts of that project with Ben so that we could focus our discussion about Mank on craft. Thank you so much for joining me again. I really enjoy our conversations that we've had in the past about editing. and Pleasure. I look forward to this one. To start with, one of the first things I noticed is someone who's watched a lot of black and white movies from the 30s and 40s is that the style of the cinematography is very similar to those films. Is the style of the editing also similar? Absolutely not. <laughs> And I think that was a conscious decision. It did come up in conversation with Fincher of whether we should purposefully slow down our pacing and our responses, you know, response time to things. And it was my point of view that that would just make it seem a bit shit. I think it was enough for it to be lensed and shot in that style so that it visually places us there and it sounds like we're there. But I was asked this recently and I gave a similar answer in that for me, the most exciting part about working with David in terms of the craft part of putting scenes together is the volume of what he captures. And I don't mean multiple takes of one topic. I mean, he gets all the angles necessary to bring you around a room from every perspective that counts. And then if he's in a long scene, he'll get people up and he'll move them typically, so that you can start to create new perspectives and new places to be, so that things are always being stimulated and refreshed and reset. And if it was edited like an old film, and I'm sure there's examples where this is incorrect, but if it was edited like a movie from the 1930s, we would be sitting in masters and we'd be sitting in two shots and we'd be letting the actors do their thing. But I think today, and with Fincher especially, we've got the ability to move around at a much greater pace. And with that, because you're dissecting a scene into smaller pieces, you can control with much more accuracy a performance and an intention of the scene. Do you feel some obligation with such great coverage for a scene that's covered in that way? I think the last time we talked, you said, if I get a 15 to 1 ratio of a scene with the coverage, you would have a question about why these options. Do you feel like you have to use every single setup? <laughs> I try to. I try to use each setup correctly. 
And I try not to overuse setups. I think if you're in a performance scene, use as often as you want their, their main over shoulder or what have you, but that's there to sort of pass out the information. But I try not to um, repeat angles if I don't have to. Mm-hmm. But the math of passing out the angles within a scene, I think is the pleasure of the sport. That's super enjoyable. The amount of takes that so much conversation takes place with Fincher really just ensures that you've got the best piece possible when in that angle. But really the conversation, if it was being accurate about David, should be redirected to the amount of coverage, not the amount of takes. So when actors talk about, oh my God, I did 80 takes with Fincher on that scene, that's because it's like, yeah, you did seven takes or you did eight takes of 10 angles. Right. That's why you did 80 takes. It's not because he's a fucking masochist, like, you know, <laughs> insane dude just banging your head against the wall on the one angle over and over. I, I am sure not. Did you screen films of the era? Did I? No. I kind of had this embarrassing conversation with myself, Don Burt, the production designer, Eric Messerschmidt, and Trish. Eric is the cinematographer, Trish, the costume designer, and Fincher, and put us all together and One of the questions that came up, I think, for all of us was how everybody researched and prepped for their roles. And it became embarrassingly clear that I was the only department that doesn't require this. (laughs) (laughs) Because I sat down to watch Citizen Kane again, and I'm okay receiving my hate mail for this, but uh, it just didn't hold my attention. (laughs) And it's got a lot to do with its pacing. I I can appreciate it for what it did and how it moved forward. And I still think there's a lot of beauty in it, in how things are constructed and set up. And I just adored the end of scenes, the way they sort of would fade down within a scene. So it's not just an optical fade. It was lights turning off physically. So a scene would gradually dissipate in the same way you would for a stage play. And I think Fincher and Eric Messerschmitt beautifully took from that in our film. I I loved it when those shots and those dailies came up and I spent a lot of time making sure that we were using the absolute best one and the best angle for it because those lighting setups would occur in almost every angle that you did a scene in. So you have to make sure you're in the best one to really highlight it and show it off and sort of work your scene backwards so that you knew you could be in the right spot for closing the scene out with that. So to go back to when I watched Citizen Kane, I found it more enjoyable to watch it with uh, the last picture show, Peter no. Bogdanovich? Yes. He did the audio commentary on the DVD that I had of Citizen Kane, and I found it fascinating to listen to that as I was watching, and that kept me glued to it because it provided more of the historical context of the decision-making behind things and what was groundbreaking at the time. And I guess if you watch that film through the lens of here's what this film gave us, almost like a film school, then it's a fascinating piece of work. I'm just one person in an opinion, so I don't think I deserve an audience over uh, dissecting films of the past. But I can put it really simply, if I get my 16-year-old daughter to watch Citizen Kane, she's bored. If I get my 16-year-old daughter to watch The Godfather, she's riveted. Mm. Things have progressed in storytelling, Mm -hmm. I think. And in editing, which is how we started this conversation, which was this film, Mank, is not edited in the manner of those films because it would have been too slow. Yeah, 
And it's just not possible for us to do it that way. Editorial is repetition. And the amount of times that Dave and I would sit in a room or even be throwing in opinions in separate places due to COVID, the amount of times that we are consuming the same material over and over again in order to improve it, it wouldn't be possible to last through it that many times without fixing what is a awkward pause or things that sort of bump and grind. Even if you wanted to try to make it shit, I don't think. Uh, <laughs> again, I don't want to be the voice of filmmaking. And it's not for me to say whether something we make is good or bad. It's for others to decide. I think the same as with films of the past, to be respected for where they stood in that time frame. Let's talk a little bit about the score, because the score did seem like a score from the past. Is that correct? What did you temp with? Only with Trent Naticus's work. I love those guys so much. And they're so easy to work with and just so damn good. It wasn't too far into the process when they dumped about 20 tracks on me. I recall, I know where I was sitting at the time in my <laughs> living room, and it was 9 or 10 o'clock at night, and they sent them all via pics, and Fincher and I were texting with each other and pouring over them immediately. It hits like a gift and a present for all of us. And straight away, when you're listening to them, it's like, oh my goodness, this one is a bullseye for that drunken fever dream during the election night. And the track turned up exactly the way it is. I mean, I'm sure that it gets re-recorded with an orchestra, but with a sing, with a montage like that, that is so sort of glued to its music, everything's got to stay within the frame of where beats land and everything. So from the first moment, they just throw darts right into the bullseye. And it's sort of up to us a lot you know, myself and David, of which track goes where, but they sort of just send a whole pile and Dave and I'll work through it and it'll be like, this is the most beautiful one. This has got to be like the Manx score. This one's got to be like, let's save this for the most emotional hitting part. This can be the conclusion. But if we're going to use it in this part of the film, let's try to find two or three more homes for it so it's earned by the end and will slowly evolve that track. And so they share in all these conversations. So I might use a track as in its bare bones simplicity three or four times in the film, and then Trent and Atticus will take that and expand upon it and improve on it based on each use. Got it. So when you said that you were temping with just their stuff, I think, well, you couldn't have been temping with the social network or something like that. You were- No, no, no. They wrote for the film, but they don't write to the film. Got it. So they just sort of handed over their first album and said, his Manx volume one. <laughs> and of that, I think three quarters of the music is in the film. And then we start sharing scenes and then in comes Manx volume two. And then by the time I'm assembled and we're starting to fine cut, they're now writing specifically for scenes. And they might send two or three versions and we lay them all up, we weigh everything and jump on the one that's the most hand in glove. I mean, sometimes we used needle drop for things that were supposed to be source music to place you of the time. Diegetic type stuff. Yeah, like something that's playing in the lobby of the hotel as Manx exiting, something that's playing on the radio. And actually it's fun. We used on the scene where um, Manx passed out in bed and drops the bottle, sort of homage to Citizen Kane there. And he's listening to the radio. I put in, I tempt in an Atticus piece that they did from The Watchmen that sounded 1930s and jazzy. And it was absolutely perfect in there to the point where we were sort of saying to ourselves, 
do you think we can just license this one? <laughs> and But Trent's like, well, you've kind of got direct access with the guys that did that one. So how about we do another? <laughs> and they wrote us a piece exclusively for that. It was so good. We just did a commercial with it for TV marketing, I think, using that track, a 60 second commercial. I think we had about five original pieces that we were licensing towards the end of their writing it became a game really for me and probably a pile of work for them of trying to get them to do absolutely every and one by one we just knocked them out and Trent Naticus rewrote in the era and the only piece that was licensed is California Here We Come that's on the marketing fake newsreel oh yeah there are a few big set pieces, at least from an editing standpoint, that I wanted to talk to you about because they're obviously difficult or they must have taken a while to do, as I could imagine. The first one is Louis B. Mayer's birthday party. Yeah, There's like a birthday party-wide conversation where it's not each person having little side conversations. It's literally 20 or 30 people in the room all talking to each other in the same conversation. Talk to me about trying to cut that and, and what the difficulties of it were. A scene of that size with that many angles, when the dailies come in, I guess the first mindset is fear. Because <laughs> with Fincher, I start, I start on day two and I'm trying to keep up with camera. And here's a long answer to it, but the closer I keep to camera, the better it is in regards to helping David. I think he's staying in close contact with me not to be an overlord over what I'm doing, but more to get affirmation that the collective good of all of his key players and actors is coming together so that he's doing his job to tell a story and recreate human behavior and is it dramatic and all of that stuff. So he's constantly checking in to get affirmation that he shot something, that he's okay, that he can keep progressing. And then there's the flip side of that, when you're dealing with sets, I've also got production. Sion, Finch's wife, checking in, sort of saying, next Tuesday, we want to strike this set. And here's the price tag for each day that we got to keep the set because Dave's not going to strike it until he knows he's got the scene. And he doesn't know he's got the scene until he's seen a cut. And so there's this pressure that used to sort of be crushing to me when I was younger because I was in this world of wanting to live up to my role. And I still exist in that frame somewhat, but I take more pleasure in it now, knowing that I'm helping. I take this sort of foolish pride in helping economically so that they can release that actor, that they can strike that set, that the band can keep playing. And I take pride in my role of relaxing David and letting him understand that he's getting it so that he can concentrate on moving forward. So that's the sort of build-up in answering to your question. So when a scene like the birthday party comes in and there's that much material and it's shot over that many days and there's that many choices, you can't put that together quickly. And as soon as he's finished shooting that one, he's moved on to the next scene. And so you've got to keep up, but you've got this monster that's arrived. And the only way to beat the monster is to attack it. And it's just a pile of work. And when you've got a ticking clock on you, sometimes the pleasure of doing a scene like that starts to become a chore because you just got to get through it. I'm always cautious that I sound like some prick that thinks that I'm clever at doing something. When I'm, I, I guess I go the long way around and uh, maybe everybody does, but I'm not privy to how every other editor is working. 
I just painstakingly select and organize everything and shrink it down and just slowly shrink it all down so that it starts to become very clear and obvious how to get through something. Because at first I don't know, I wouldn't have a clue. And until I organize it, until I make the choices clear to me about which angle to be in at what time and how to walk through a scene like that so that you're not dizzy watching it so that it is a pleasure for an audience to watch and you do know where you are and you do know where everybody's at in the room it just requires a whole pile of time once you've kind of worked it out and once i've got it like a first assembly done and you can get through it and it makes sense then dave's good like he doesn't need to see it polished to a shine he just needs to know that he's got the scene that's when the pleasure starts. Now you can really manipulate it. Now you can try not to overuse angles. Now you can perfect when you're going to use that close-up of pops so that he's the almighty, powerful, in the centre of the room. You consider how you're not diluting that power by overusing his close-up. And I try a lot to sort of bring things back to Mank in that scene. I was conscious of trying to keep things framed around how he's getting into it. One of the scenes where David's just a very sort of fast piece of direction helped me a lot from Dave by describing that that's what it was like. I don't know that David was there at the time when those parties were taking place, but his, <laughs> his perception was that this was it. Like Hurst would invite all these players over, people of opposing opinions on purpose, and he would say, let it rip. Let's let the arguments go. Ply everyone with drinks, fill the room with beautiful women, put a bunch of big brains in there and let it rip. And it was supposed to be this raucous kind of talking over each other. I think that's supposedly why he liked having Mank there, who was extremely quick-witted and not shy to deliver his point. And when David sort of said it was this ruckus vying for attention, that told me how fast the scene can be. So I got it as tight as it could be whilst being able to track it. Yeah, absolutely. And I did kind of sense that the thing with Mank, that you were trying to come back to him. It was interesting. He was off to one side of the room, so he wasn't the center of attention. But the scene, he was kind of the center of attention because you would come back to him to check in on him fairly regularly. Yes, to keep him as the focus, not just being on people as they speak. Bring it back to Mank as he's absorbing it. Yeah. And then see things through his perspective. One of the other big set pieces was the election night. That must have been a very complex scene to edit. Well, it sort of had three parts to it. And did you organize it like that? Did you think of it as three separate scenes? Yes. It's not my decision that it was shot to be that. It was written to be that. It was shot to be that. The part of that that was always niggly was musically mm. of how to go from things that are internal for Mank to then being external in the room and then back internal and then external. Because normally if you're putting that many scenes together in one space, like one piece of music could contain all of it. But we were doing a very big sort of highs and lows, and they needed to be musically separated. So there's a lot of sort of fiddling with how to glue that together sonically. And I was really happy with how we ended out at first. But when you're doing it, you're dealing with that sort of first guide track that drops. And then as you progress, things can be written precisely for those scenes to sort of help 
glue them together. And the work that Ren does with sound design, it helps a lot. But it, that's another case where I went the long way around, like the montage stuff that's more inside Mank's head of him watching the room as he gets drunker. David, he shot it at different speeds because there's two montages and the first montage is a faster speed and the second one, it gets slower. So that's sort of how I separated in terms of selecting dailies. Because mm. a lot of the time you're dealing with the same people on the stage and the same actions that are taking place, but I've got different speeds where it all occurs. So I could kind of go, all right, you're in that folder and you're in that camp. But he didn't shoot that all in one hit. He would do pickups of, you know, a cigar burning or ice falling into a glass or, or all those different crazy close-up imagery. Like a few shots would just turn up here and there. But each time something arrived, I cut it as if that's all I had and was ever going to have. So I would find a cut the scene each time to the music and we didn't really want the scene to get longer. So then a week later, five more shots would turn up and I would have to work out how to shove them in there <laughs> while still trying to keep my own rules of eye travel and screen direction and this shot's framed on the right side of the frame and the next one I want to be over on the left side of the frame and things like that. So that the montage has this sort of song to it and Sometimes when a new shot comes up, you've got to pull apart what you were happy with, but ultimately it gets better. So it, I, I could have avoided that if I looked at a schedule and, <laughs> and saw that something was being shot down the track, but I just never do. I just don't really have that professional discipline, <laughs> planning and plotting. I just deal with what gets put in front of me. I would think that a lot of that is also just trying to keep up to camera. In order to keep up to camera, that's the way you've got to approach it because otherwise you'd be sitting on your hands for three days until something came in. Well, I'm not afraid of reworking something. I don't mind doing the work. And when it's something like a montage like this, it's really pleasurable. I feel much better if I'm on top of everything and I would rather do it 10 times and be on top of it then sit on a bunch of dailies and having that irritating the shit out of me. <laughs> I'm not on top of it. I loved putting all of that together. The only time it was niggly for me was sonically to get it to all glue. And we went up to, to Skywalker Ranch, like drove there from LA. That was the first outing out of my house with the whole lockdown. And I was in one of those little rooms, John Ford suite, <laughs> riding my bicycle up to Skywalker and I think, what is it, like five of us were allowed in the mixing bay with our masks on at a time. And, you know, did that whole process with the guys up there and Fincher. And that's when that scene, you know, finally got sort of coated in its resin and set to place. And I kind of breathed my sigh of relief and went, yay. (laughs) We'll be back in a moment with more of my conversation with Kirk Baxter. Today's episode of the Art of the Cut podcast is brought to you by FilmTools.com. Since 1996, FilmTools has been Hollywood's one-stop shop for all things production and post. No matter your filmmaking needs, FilmTools has you covered when you need gear for your next shoot or edit. This week, FilmTools is offering Art of the Cut listeners 10% off thousands of products when shopping on FilmTools.com. All you have to do is enter code AOTC10 at checkout. That's AOTC10 at checkout to get 10% off your purchase on FilmTools.com. So whether you need a GTEC hard drive or an Airy Sky panel, make sure to head over to FilmTools.com and check out with discount code AOTC10 to get 10% off your next equipment purchase. And now back to my conversation with Kirk Baxter. Uh, You mentioned how the scene with the 
election coverage, how sonically important it was to you to get that right. Was that to do with tone, the various tones that are in that scene? Yeah, it's because the montages are internal inside Gary's head and they needed to have their own kind of way of telling it musically that separated from what was live music playing in the event. So you went from being in the event to being inside our character. And because they were such sort of vertical changes, the coming in and out of those scenes were the tricky part for me. I don't think they're, I mean, hopefully they're not tricky for an audience, but I found I picked on myself a lot in terms of how I was progressing through it. But it was ultimately the mix that solved it for us. A lot of the movie centers around, you kind of mentioned this already, the speed with which Mank thinks and speaks. The conversations in the pattern in certain scenes are lightning fast. Did you find that you were trying to tighten that and make him seem smarter by answering faster? Or were you really more following the performances of the actors than molding the performances? I think it's all of the above. I mean, no matter how drunk Mank was, he still had the same response time. Uh, <laughs> that's impressive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I think that's probably what he's famous for is his wit and willingness to embrace conflict directly to the hand that feeds him. I think I'm consciously trying to pick up the pace of any scene, not specifically to speed Mank up, but move through things as actively as we can. Sure. Some of it I had to consciously slow down, and that's really around Upton Sinclair. We made a conscious effort to allow that information, especially when Manx's watching him deliver his live speech so that people can get familiar with the unknown. I always worry when you're in scenes where they're talking about other people, names of people that aren't there, names of people you are yet to meet, it's a similar thing with, I remember with Dragon Tattoo and Elizabeth Salander when she was kind of in the vault collecting all the data of working out who were at these all these murder sites and she's found this clue that led her to that clue that led her to this clue. And we want the scene to move quick and you're working against this sort of idea that is the audience in lockstep with you? And back then we came to the conclusion that it doesn't fucking matter. The audience needs to know that she knows that she's the expert on it. And if you aren't 100% tracking, and I hope you are, but if you're not 100% tracking any given topic during Louis Mayer's birthday party, you are tracking that Mank has a fucking solid opinion about it. And it's the opposite <laughs> of those that he's opposed to. You know, There were a couple of times where I felt like, yeah, I can't keep up, but that's the whole point he can. You know, and whatever I missed, I don't need to worry about because I followed the story and that's all that I needed to do. Yeah, it's going to come to you. It's it's doing its job of delivering. I mean, it's, there I go again. It's doing, I, I think. You hope, you hope it's doing. <laughs> yeah, I think, I hope it's doing its job of delivering the characters. Got it. Is there a difference with editing this style of cinematography? The compositions are very... Obviously, all composition should be deliberate, but there was something just so beautiful and perfect and precise about the compositions and the blocking. Does it change things for you? I don't think so. I mean, it becomes very clear of you know what angles deserve their moment in the sun and how long you should be on them. You can sort of follow your nose through it. It's probably just a testament to your editing, but I felt with many scenes like 
that has to be the only real entry into a scene, <laughs> the shot that you used. Thank you, but I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't recall. It'd be a case-by-case -case basis. It would be a case-by-case -case basis, but a lot of them, they seemed like the classic guys walking up the sidewalk in a certain way. You're like, oh, yeah, you wouldn't want to be on a close-up or you wouldn't want to be, I don't know, across the street. Yeah. I mean, I think Dave can shoot to that a lot, especially when you're in the bungalow. There was pretty much, you could work out there's only one way to exit a scene. Well, there's only one way to exit a scene a lot of the times. To your point of earlier, uh, many of the scenes end with a lighting cue where exactly. the scene kind of turns off in layers. Yes. That's when you're in the bungalows. That's the sort of present part of the film. And with David shooting multicam, like you do multiple cameras at the same time, you do have choices of how you want to exit a scene because, you know, they're all getting that same lighting effect to live. But it's just... It's just what our jobs are. You just sort of what's picking which one's the most beautiful. Sure. You can see, oh, in this composition, you see the light in the back and then this face turn off and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's like which one shows that off the best. But coming into scenes, David does tend to kind of shoot specifically for that. I mean, it can become pretty obvious of what the choice is of how to start a scene, but the craft starts to become the choice of when to jump off. At what point do you get out of that shot? And is there anything that leads you in that decision? You know, it's not just boredom. It's when a shot has achieved a certain energy that's going to propel you into the next shot, or what is it? Ultimately, it will become clear in the scene, like with watching and re-watching, when you're overstaying your welcome. Mm -hmm. And sometimes if you jump off too soon, there's going to be more ping pong than you want. So if you hold out that little bit longer, you can reduce a little bit of that. I guess it's just the willingness to explore and trying out a sort of almost like a math equation going, if I play that move here, how does it translate six moves down? If I go back to the beginning and I play that move one beat later, what's the ripple effect? And, you know, I'd be a genius if I knew all these things ahead of time, like some great chess player, but I only know by working it through. Yeah. And that's something that I talk about a lot to people is the process that, Sure, you cut something one way when you're trying to keep up to dailies and you've got to cut a scene fairly quickly, but then your approach to it changes a lot once you get out of the dailies process. Yeah. I mean, I do find that because I'm so painstaking about selecting before I start assembling, I find 90% of the time I'm 90% of the way there <laughs> at first assembly. And it's really just the refining of things unless I kind of get it wrong, like just straight up got it wrong. And in regards to getting it wrong, it's getting it wrong with what David intended or had in his mind. There was only, I think there was two scenes in this where I got like a text back saying, when I shot this, I was thinking about being over here at this time and where I kind of approached it completely differently to what Dave had in mind. Like it's so quickly solved and easily fixed. And in some cases there were rudimentary scenes like one was watching Louis B. Mayer exit the funeral mm. when he drops his handkerchief. And it was just in terms of coverage of how to be on Mank and at what point to come over. Like I think I used Louis B. Mayer coming out as his own shot, but instead of getting Mank in position and becoming his POV. That's very small things. But I try to, because I live in this sort of world of trying to move the ball forward without going to the cheat sheet that is Fincher so that his energy isn't trying to keep me up to speed. 
because he's got so many other mouths to feed. So I remember these moments where I was like, oh, fuck, I didn't read that out of the coverage. And they become scar tissue for me. And it's, it's unfair. I don't deserve to do that to myself. And I only recall two of them in the movie. And that doesn't mean to say that I cut everything exactly how David wanted. It was more like, oh, there's two that I fucking blew. But that's the bar I set for myself is I want to be as useful as I can be. Yeah. And these occasions when I'm not, I go, ah, shit. <laughs> <laughs> So I am so cautious to work with anyone. (laughs) It's exhausting, isn't it? It's (laughs) absolutely exhausting, like with time and mentally all of it. And I got an email yesterday, because I don't really work with an agent on films. We have an executive producer on my commercial front, but not with... um, Features. Yeah, features. I mean, they can field the calls and things for me. But mostly my thing is avoidance. (laughs) (laughs) But I got this call yesterday sort of saying, uh, you know, there's blah, blah, blah movie and, you know, please call this person. They think they've got something. that, And I look at it going, oh, I don't even want to be told what it is. Like, what if, um, <laughs> like, no, a scene never scares me, like putting together a scene no matter how many angles it's got or how deep it is. Like, the crafting of making films is, like, it's workable. And if you remove the crushing part of it's got to be done this quickly, and you put yourself in a relaxed frame, like it's all workable and it's really quite joyous. But if you do that with in a hostile environment with cruel people or with people that are playing like mind games with you or that their scene doesn't look good because of how you did it, if they're not being forthright because they're unhappy about what they shot or there's someone in more power that's a producer that wished it was this, but it didn't get that, and you become the roadkill because of it, editorial can be really hostile. It's sort of when it can all get thrashed out and you get blood on the walls. So <laughs> I, I find myself just to a fault really cautious about what I want to get involved in because it's hard. And I know that with David, the conversation isn't personal. It's about the material and he's accountable He's like a drip fund that's just steadily checking in and he's reliable, he's accountable, he's not emotionally hostile and you move forward in the collective front to do the best you can possibly do with what you have. Even the filmmakers that I know, that I respect, that are doing great movies today, the business, we all know each other and everyone knows the background stories and I hear some of the most insane stuff about behaviour I'm like, oh, Christ, there's no way I want to put myself in that situation. (laughs) Well, that's got to be one of the great things with working with David so many times and him with you is that comfort level and to know that when David walks into a room with you, he knows what he's going to get. He knows how to act. He knows how you're going to respond. And same thing with you. Yes. And it's always reasonable and it's always fun. I don't know if it's always fun, but it's once the shooting stops, it's a complete pleasure. During shooting, I just beat the shit out of myself. That's how I can be most helpful to what David's doing. It's just an uphill climb. And it is what it is. It is for him too. It's crushingly hard on set, trying to get everything done. At the end of that day, if you didn't get it, you didn't get it. That's a hard way to live day in, day out during shooting. I don't feel sorry for him. He signs up for this stuff. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I take pleasure in being part of this sort of film family where you can all lean on each other. 
and it's earned over a long period of time. And it's like any other relationship. I don't want to get divorced from it. And I want to earn my right to be there and continue to reap the rewards for doing so. I love the little real change hole punches. <laughs> Were those scripted in exact scenes or did you put them where the actual balance real changes were? I had nothing to do with that. Oh, no. <laughs> that was all Dave. They turned up after the fact. Like, you know, that's Dave writing notes on pics. Real change here. Yeah. They were just a pleasure for me when I spotted them the same way you did kind of thing. Yeah. So those were done in online or in the DI or something? There's all visual effects, yeah. Yeah. Because I noticed even in one of them, you probably noticed the same thing. I think it was only in the first one that at the real change, there's also a little bump in the picture. Yeah. And he puts the sound in there too. Yeah. I just thought that was fantastic. Can you speak to the schedule, like especially the overall general schedule? When did they shoot? How long did they shoot? And then how long did you have to edit? But also you mentioned how long they shot just one scene, like the birthday scene. How long did the birthday scene or the election scene go on? Five days? How long? How many days? Shooting. Shoot? Yeah. Approximately. Um, was it like a week for each of those? I can't recall. I think probably. I think it was a five-day shoot for the banquet scene at the end. Oh, the um, costume party? Yes. I think that was five days. That was one where I got really lucky because it was one of the last things Dave shot. So I didn't have the heat on me to get that cut so they could strike because they knew they had to shoot the scene and then strike. Mm -hmm. So no one came at me. And I could just sit down and do it without a foot on my neck. <laughs> yeah, that was probably the third of the big set pieces for editing. Like there were a lot of people. It was a lot of reaction shots. Yeah. I was scared of that one. Because hmm. it's also because Manx Blotto drunk. And he owns the scene in regards to what's being said. And there's a lot being said. There's a lot of pages. The scene, I think, plays for seven minutes. I could be wrong about that. But I think like one take goes for something like just a take, goes for seven minutes. So when you think of all the angles it takes to sort of circle that table and all the different players and you're going to get any coverage, it's seven minutes long for a take. So you just multiply that out to what it takes to shoot a scene like that. There's just a lot of material. And then you've got someone playing drunk. Are they always going to be legible when they're intentionally slurring or bumbling? And are they always the same amount of drunk over five days? Yeah. So I was pretty nervous about that one. I thought there was going to be a, potentially a lot of work crafting Gary's performance to get it to be fluid. And I was surprised at how easily the scene came together. Because mm. Gary was exceptional to the point where any one of his performances you could have put in front of a live audience on a stage and you get a standing ovation when he played through the whole scene from start to finish. Gary killed it and consistently killed it, take after take after take. And this is, again, it always sort of comes back to how David shoots, not just with the amount of angles and the amount of takes within those angles. When you remove the problem of, well, the actor's good in this angle here and not so good in that one there, so the performance isn't dictating where I can be because all the performances are good in every choice, I can now work out where the best place to be is based on who's looking back at Mank and work off the perspectives looking back at him and then where Mank's walked to. And the whole thing just becomes like a ballet of movement. I think also because there wasn't a pressure of when they were going to strike, I could just really sit down and enjoy myself. Mm -hmm. 
Final question, because we're kind of at the end of our time here. When you mentioned organizing things, and clearly you have an assistant editor and multiple assistants, how much of that organizing are you doing because you feel like it's part of your process? And do you use selects reels to try to get things down? Yes. Anything I can offload, I offload in terms of just labor. I mean, I do for my own survival. I try to offload as much as I can so that assistants are included as much as possible in what's taking place in the cutting room, not just prepping you to work. But I'll come in in the morning on whatever's been shot and I'll go through and mark up in each angle with the multicams where I want to be at which time and mark how I want those scenes broken into pieces. Like with locators, markers? I'll do one take and I'll do add edit. Oh. And I'll choose which angle to be in. Got it, okay. And I'll slice in a, like a mark saying, I want these things separated. So a seven minute scene, I might break it into 12 chunks. So then when I analyze each performance, I'm analyzing. A 12th of it. Yeah, exactly. And then I can really understand, has this bit been nailed rather than picking something that Gary did for the entire seven minutes? So I'll go through and do one take and map out precisely where I want everything to be. And then I'll hand that on and they'll replicate that through all the takes and then start to build scenes out for me. Then I'll watch through one that's been broken down and I'll raise to video layer two everything of interest and anything that gets raised and I pass that off and then the assistants will sort that into a reel of here's all the selects. But I ask them to sort of put it in scene order so that if you hit a movement or a beat, you hit it in its sort of master and then you work your way into tights and close-ups and things like that. So as I sort of slowly shrink down that selects, it starts to become clear what's redundant within that piece. Like, you know, I'm definitely not going to need the master here. I don't need that close-up here. And then I can start to shrink down what I'm evaluating. Sometimes I'll keep the close-up stuff around just to be able to keep the audio. It's often better mic'd and sometimes more precise. Yeah, it's just this sort of process like that. In a, in a scene that's that large, I then might shrink it into three or four selects reels because otherwise it ends up being like 30 minutes, 40 minutes of selects. So I'll start to break that into kind of 10-minute pieces. Here's the first act of that scene. Here's the second act of that scene. And here's and the, and it's the more you kind of reduce these things down and get them into things where you're not judging 10,000 things, you're now just judging 100 things, you can progress, you can move forward, yeah. you can make solid, informed choices. And with a scene like that, there was a lot of ways to get in and out of it. The entry points were obvious. How you bring Gary into the scene, that was different. When it got broken up, for going back to um, the bungalow and then you'd return to that scene and Gary's standing up going, I've got a picture, Louie. In that particular moment, because of the amount of coverage that was in that scene from start to finish, I probably had 15 different ways to jump into it. And I probably explored 15 different ways. And then I think out of that, there's probably four winners. And with that, I probably share those four with Dave. And he's like, let's go with this. And then two days later, it's like, yeah, no, maybe we should try this. So it's in flux. It's not completely obvious, but I, I do sort of stand by the idea that about 90% of it can get worked out just by being very systematic about how you distill down the information. And by the time you're ready to march forward, it's informed. Got it. I know other editors that just jump in and go for it. I've experienced that where they kind of go, well, the first thing I do is just slam together a scene so I can see what it is. I'm like, I didn't even know how to do that. 
that's why I do these interviews because everybody's different and it's interesting to hear your perspective and somebody else's perspective that that's the way they do it. <laughs> yeah. I really love it. Hey, last short question. You've edited on a couple of different NLEs and you're on Premiere for this. Any thoughts about NLE or Premiere, where it's gone, how your tool affects you? Do you not care? I don't care. I mean, I care if it's not working and I care a whole bunch. I'm privileged to be able to offload a lot of that to the first assistant and somewhat to Peter Mavramides, who's the head of post. I work in this sort of muscle memory of what keys I'm hitting and where, and I can get very frozen in time with what I'm doing because I want all of my thought process to be about the decisions, not how I'm executing. And the software is execution. So I prefer not to be changing it. And if I am changing it, then I want whatever new thing we're going to, to adapt a lot of the process of how I worked prior. If I've got something new to learn, I'll do it kicking and screaming. And then after a week of repetition, I don't think about it again. And I'm like a dad whose music on his iPod froze <laughs> the his kids were born and nothing else was bought. It's the same sort of thing. It's, you know, going all the way back to Avid, I took my Avid settings and I put them onto Final Cut when I went to Final Cut. And then I took my Final Cut settings and I put those onto Premiere. And I'm positive the assistants are all doing it better than me, but I get my shit done. <laughs> that is what matters in the long run. Yeah. Kirk, thank you so much for spending so much time with us. I really appreciate it. Thank you for the interest. That's it for Out of the Cup this week. Thanks for listening. Also, check out ProVideoCoalition.com for nearly 300 interviews with the world's top editors. Or read the book Art of the Cut, Conversations with Film and TV Editors for a topic-driven, curated experience. Thanks again to my guest, Kirk Baxter, ACE. Also, thanks to Jake Gum, who edited this episode using Adobe Audition, and to Paul McKenna for mixing and mastering. If this is a podcast that you got something out of, follow me on Twitter and Instagram at at Steve Hallfish. I hope you subscribe to this podcast and give it a review, please. And finally, be sure to share them with a filmmaking or film-loving friend.